y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show, Los Angeles Times transportation reporter Laura Nelson and entertainment and sports journalist Audrey Cleo Yap. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to both of my guests with me here in studio. They're already frowning because I'm playing Nickelback. I'll tell you why I'm playing Nickelback, Audrey. Please explain. You can't see the cringe. <laughs> Let me just introduce y'all first. Okay, I'm here with Audrey Cleo Yap, entertainment and sports journalist, and Laura Nelson, who covers transportation for the LA Times, which is probably the best city to cover transportation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, two veterans of the show, happy to have you here. This is the first time I've had Nickelback on the show. Let's just pump it for a second. <laughs> oh my god. Should I go back and try to graduate? Um, I'm not playing Nickelback just to torment you all. I'm not playing Nickelback just because I like them cuz I do. I am playing this song, Photograph by Nickelback, because Nickelback was mentioned this week in Congress. Did you guys hear about this? Just when we think we've seen it all this you have year not in seen politics. It all. Exactly, exactly. So during debate over a voting rights provision this past Thursday, a Democratic member of the House, Mark Pocan, he's from Wisconsin, he was talking about a certain voting rights provision and how it was not at all that popular. And then he said, this voting rights measure is so unpopular, it's like Nickelback. Uh, 77,000 people did comment. Uh, Only four uh, wanted to keep this provision. Everyone else wanted to change this out of 77,000. That's probably about the percent of people who think Nickelback is their favorite band in this country. It's pretty low. Really mean. Uh, So uh, he makes that comment. And then Representative Rodney Davis, who is a Republican from Illinois, He shot back. Why would you criticize one of the greatest (laughs) bands of the 90s? Wow. All right. And, like, this continued. One more reason why there's a difference between Democrats and Republicans clearly found on the floor of Congress today. But uh, Then Davis went on to defend his opinion. My colleague from Wisconsin, I know he did not mean to offend the many, many thousands upon thousands of Nickelback fans in his district in Wisconsin. Uh, I'll stand here. Thousands is stretching it. The dozens. The dozens upon dozens. This is what I never get about Nickelback hate. All of the haters have to admit that they bought at least one of those albums back in the day. I never bought a Nickelback album. I never bought a Nickelback album. I bought bought two. It was very big in Kansas. (laughs) You should should not tell people that. I bought two. (laughs) Question is, though, would you rather live in an America where the majority of Congress loves Nickelback or hates Nickelback? Well, they're Canadian. So I like Canadians. I don't think we should be debating this at all. Wow. This is is just a waste of my tax dollars. (laughs) Isn't Congress less popular than Nickelback? (laughs) Yeah. In terms of like approval polls. So I don't think they have anything to talk about. True, true, true. All right. Nickelback, I'm still rooting for you. Anyway, (laughs) we're going to start this week, as we always do, asking each of my guests to describe their week of news in only three words. Laura. You can do this. And your three words could even, if you want them to be, they could be Nickelback, Nickelback, Nickelback. My three words are time to pay. Okay. I cover transportation, like you said. Yeah. And there's been a lot of discussion in L.A. over the last week about how to better manage traffic in this great, horrible, congested metropolis. <laughs> One of the proposals, there's two proposals that are on the table that both involve charging people significantly more to get around L.A. <laughs> One would 
expand dramatically the tolling system on the freeways of LA, either by adding more express lanes, which are the carpool lanes that you can pay to use if you're a solo driver, Mm -hmm. or to even charge people to enter certain neighborhoods, uh, which is in place in cities like London and um, some other major cities in other parts of the world. Um, But there was a study done in San Francisco in the fall of 2016, so almost three years ago, that showed that Uber and Lyft trips represented 20% of the total congestion in the city of San Francisco. 20%. So one in five. And in some of the most congested parts of the city during rush hour, it represented 25 to 26% of total congestion. So a fourth. And these are in parts of town where there is great public transit. It's very walkable. It's Mm -hmm. not hard to get around. And people are going from place to place where there are a lot of other options to make those trips and are choosing to take these services anyway. So cities are starting to say... Okay, it's not that we would choose not to have these, but we need to figure out what's the best way to try to like rein them in and yeah. get the congestion under control. Yeah. And some people have said a tax on Uber and Lyft is one way to do that, either because a higher price would discourage some people in some situations from taking it if mm-hmm. the price is correct. Or you could at least make some money that could be used to fund, for example, more public transit improvements. Yeah. One of the big picture questions I have out of your reporting is how do companies, startup companies like Uber and Lyft, how do they operate financially and how does that affect the way they do business? So we know that for years now, neither Uber or Lyft have been profitable, but they have a bunch of startup and venture capital money and they basically get to subsidize the price of these rides. And lots of folks in the know say that whether it's in L.A. or wherever else, the cost of your Lyft or Uber ride is probably actually too low for the market. Uh, and that's because these companies are just floating on buckets of money. Yes, like that's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Is there a certain unfairness in the way that companies like Uber and Lyft get to spend money that they aren't making? And is this like a larger indictment, at least for me, of like startup VC culture? I I think that that is like the opacity has always bothered me. So like one of the really fascinating things about Silicon Valley over the last 10 years is that there's been a huge embrace of companies that are not profitable. I was reading something. It said in 2018. So this study said that in 2018. 81% of U.S. companies were not profitable in the year that led up to their public offering. That rate is as high as it was in 2000, right before the dot-com bubble burst. So... Uber and Lyft, it's it's going to be really interesting to see. They're both barreling towards initial public offerings, towards IPOs. And mm-hmm. Lyft filed their first financial documents last week, which mm-hmm. showed that in 2018, the company lost more than $900 million. Wow. It's not because they're not growing their customer base or becoming more popular, but they are so heavily subsidizing the cost of rides to get more people on board yeah. that they're still losing money. Wow. So... And that this is from a company that doesn't have like a ton of overhead operating expenses. Yeah, the drivers are not employees. Like they actually in in the span of like what it costs to operate a company, they don't really have that much to pay for and yeah. they're still losing 900 million dollars. So the real question is at what point do customers and drivers see a significant shift in the pricing model? Because once they start selling stock, they're going to be under pressure to make money. Mm. Like, it's not clear whether they will be able to turn a profit and whether customers will stay loyal to them if, for example, your ride costs twice as much. I will probably not stay loyal, should that happen. (laughs) I'm just shocked that they can get so close to an IPO 
and losing that much money and be losing that much money, which is just to me the whole idea of valuation versus reality. It ain't real. Okay, y'all. I have three words. Uh, they're also not kind of cheerful. Uh, the words are still no cure. And I'm talking about uh, all the headlines we've seen this week about a potential cure for HIV AIDS. I'm sure you both have seen those stories this week, huh? Yes. Um, I was so excited when I saw the headline. Yeah. But as soon as you read past the headline, you're like, ah, not quite. A little more complicated yeah. than that. Yeah. So backstory. Uh, there was a man living with HIV and cancer in the UK, and he recently needed to have a stem cell transplant to treat the cancer. But his doctors said, wait, let's actually use stem cells from bone marrow from somebody who has the Delta 32 mutation of the CCR5 gene. I know it sounds like mumbo jumbo, but basically that means this bone marrow has a certain mutation uh, that makes it hard to contract HIV. So they said, while we're doing this cancer stem cell transplant, let's see if this special kind of marrow affects the HIV that um, he has as well. Turns out it worked. Doctors insert those stem cells into this man who also has HIV. And after the transplant, it seems that the HIV in his body was eradicated. But the doctors say, don't call it a cure yet, because there have been examples before where someone's HIV goes into remission, but then comes back. So all of the headlines about a cure were a little bit sensational. And I don't like that because it gives people false hope. And two, it allows people to in some way forget about the millions of people who are living with or at risk for HIV AIDS. People sometimes like to get caught up, I think, you oh, know, yeah. in the headline. Exactly. But think about the who all actually all, gets to get that. Exactly. Who actually has access to that. And not talking about just, you know, in industrialized countries, but... Across the world. Across the yeah. world, yeah. Who yeah. would who would actually reasonably and feasibly get access to yeah. that? I'm hopeful that this is like one step toward a path where that is something that is a possibility. Yeah. And yeah. I know that, that HIV medication is, is insanely expensive. Well, this is a weird thing. And the treatment is expensive. Yeah. This is a weird uh, juxtaposition, I think, that I see this week. So on the one hand, there's all this coverage about a cure for HIV, when in reality, the drug that exists right now to prevent HIV infection or treat it, it's called Truvada, it's incredibly expensive, and a lot of folks can't afford it. So we live in this world where on the one hand, people are saying, we found a cure for HIV, but on the other hand, the pill that is out in the world right now to treat it, a lot of folks can't afford it. It's really weird. And it just has me really thinking this week about the way that we talk about medicine and like medical breakthrough. And it seems like so much of the coverage is about the possibility for the wealthy and not the reality for the rest of us. And bum me out. Yeah. I think every scientific advancement starts by being inaccessible. Yes. I'm going to strike <laughs> yes. the optimistic tone good, here. Good. Somebody <laughs> like, needs to. I mean, that's the thing about R&D, right? Is that yeah. R&D, you pour billions of dollars into developing something, and eventually it becomes accessible through economies of scale and as you find more successful pathways forward, right? So, like, I have my all of my fingers and toes crossed that this means that 20 years from now or 30 years from now, there is a treatment that is less than $2,000 a month and is yeah. accessible to more people. Yeah. And if this research leads to that, then, then good. I was glad to see these headlines happen this week and like have people talk about HIV AIDS a bit. I think that unless you're in a community that is affected by it directly, people don't think about it anymore. It was yeah. great that Rent Live was on TV. Yeah. The discussion about like what the what HIV and AIDS was like in New York City totally. in the nineties, like it's needed. It ignited like it let a thousand conversations bloom and, yes. and people learn really interesting new stories about 
what people's experiences were like. It's like, there's parts of the country where people still don't think that it is a reality is a thing. Yeah, and or it is. are unwilling to acknowledge right. that it is, yeah. and so that's really powerful. Totally. So, yeah. yeah, Audrey, do you have optimistic, happy three words? Oh, depends on you know what kind of talking <laughs> about here. <laughs> okay. But, okay. Uh, because my three words are all the reboots. Okay, all the reboots. Reboots of what? A couple of things, Sam. So it was announced earlier this week that The Sandlot, the one movie. of my favorite movies oh, yeah. from the 90s, uh, is coming back as a TV show hmm. on an unnamed streaming platform. We don't know hmm. where it's headed just yet, but the writer-director revealed on a podcast, a baseball podcast, of course, <laughs> yeah. that he had signed on or sold two seasons of a show version. Okay. And Do you I'll, think that movie needs two seasons? I would watch a couple episodes. Okay. I think I was such a huge fan of the movie. And last year was their 25th anniversary, so the, all the uh-huh. cast got together. And it was kind of interesting to see everybody come together again. Yeah. But uh, um, reportedly, the cast is coming back to do this show. Good. It's going to take place in 1984. So, and everyone's going to be in their 30s. Oh, my everyone's going to be in their 30s. They're going to be... <laughs> Full-on adults. Yeah. It's going to be in ham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Squints. All of them. As soon as you mentioned the reboot of Sandlot, I went I, I like went and looked up all the big reboots that have been happening the last year or two. There is a reboot of Daria on MTV. The real world coming back to MTV. All that's coming back to Nickelodeon. We've already seen reboots of The X-Files, Will and Grace, Arrested Development, Murphy Brown, Full House, which became Fuller House, Roseanne. I could go on. And so my question with all of this was like, are reboots a thing right now for a certain reason, or, or are reboots always a thing? What do you think, Audrey? I mean, I think historically we've seen things rebooted and remade. I mean, people forget, like, Ocean's Eleven, that whole that was franchise. A, yeah. That was a whole reboot. <laughs> you Star know, is born. Uh, yes, it was. Oh, my God. Let's not even... I have a very unpopular opinion oh, about I that Oh, I share movie. it with you. Not a great oh, okay, movie. Good, good. Not no, a great movie. It, I, it yeah. was trash. Part of why I think there's so many reboots right now, or it feels that way, is just because there's so much TV. You know, Netflix, uh, at the end of last year, had more than 700 original programs in movies. There's so many cable channels. Like, there's just so much TV. Of course, there's more reboots as well. But I did do some investigation into what Internet thinkers think is the reason for reboots right now. One, the biggest reason folks say is that nostalgia and the pull of nostalgia is real and reliable. Mm -hmm. Two, when you do a reboot and you do it well, you bring in two audiences, the old folks who like to see the old thing come back and the young folks who are like, what's all the fuss about? You can kind of just double the audience almost. Um, And then there's also the folks that just say doesn't matter if you like it or not. Don't watch it if you don't want to watch it, right? Well, we're in that position now with so many content options. I will say House of Mouse, Disney. What is House of Mouse? The House of Mouse, Disney. Disneyland? Disney? No, 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 World, Disney. Like Disney. Disney, Disney the, the Empire. The company is called yes. House of Mouse? No, 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 no. putting we, our arms out. And I know, you're really <laughs> into this. <laughs> like um, the, the, the monolith that is uh, Disney. Okay, yeah, okay, the, house, okay. so, the House of so, Mouse. Okay, I will okay. say Disney's whole trend of adapting their animated movies into live action, Yeah, that is how you get two audiences. Oh, totally, because I will go watch that live action Lion King. Right. Dumbo, that's coming out at the end of the month. I'll sob. It's okay. Last question on this topic. What thing, show, movie do both of you most want to see rebooted soon? You know what? I don't want to see any more reboots. <laughs> okay. I don't. Kind of on the same page, frankly. I don't. Yeah. I want a Mork and Mindy reboot. Okay, I'd be on board. Yeah, right? I'd watch yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> see, see. All right, on that note. All right, it's time for a break. 
I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor, AT&T Prepaid. AT&T Prepaid gives you value and flexibility with monthly pay-as-you-go plans on the same AT&T network without credit checks or annual contracts. This means you can still stream, swipe, and scroll on your device whenever, wherever. So whether you bring your favorite phone or pick up something new, AT&T Prepaid gives you the freedom to find a plan that lets you connect on your terms. To find out more, visit att.com slash prepaid. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at aecf.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and this week on Latino USA, we zoom in to one all-female immigrant detention facility in Texas and a specific case to ask how and why this system allows for sexual abuse of detainees to continue year after year. That's this week on Latino USA. Okay, before we get back to today's episode, I want to tell you about an episode we're going to drop next week. It will be me talking to Andrew Rannells. You know him from his role as Elijah on HBO's Girls. Uh, You also know him for his work on Broadway in shows like Book of Mormon. But before all that success, Andrew struggled. I was doing a musical version of um, Karate Kid called It's Karate Kid the Musical. Wait. This is the the punctuation. It's Karate, comma, kid, colon, the musical for legal purposes. Andrew Reynolds tells me all about how he went from awkward kid dreaming of acting in Omaha, Nebraska, to Broadway and HBO and all of our TV screens. That episode is in your podcast feeds next Tuesday. Okay, back to the show. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Laura Nelson, who covers transportation at the Los Angeles Times. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And Audrey Cleo Yap, a journalist covering all of the things, mostly sports and entertainment. Uh, thank you for being here. Is it time to play Who Said That Yet? Not yet. <laughs> we'll get there, though, I promise. <laughs> Before that, I want us to talk about Kashmir. Can either of you find Kashmir on a map? Yes. Good. I think I would be able to, okay. yeah. I yes, think we're in the minority, though, I'm going to have you to are, say. You are, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Kashmir is this part of the world that has been locked in conflict for some time now. India and Pakistan have been fighting over this region of Kashmir. Uh, both of the countries say this region belongs to them. Hello, Basharat. Hi, Sam. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. I'm I called up someone from that region of Kashmir. His name is Basharat Peer. Uh, he's currently an opinion editor at the New York Times, and he's based in Istanbul. Uh, and he told me this fight over Kashmir, it dates back to 1947, but it's escalating right now. Every now and then there's a trigger. So this is what happened like a couple of weeks back, and we came to a very difficult, intense moment where people feared that India and Pakistan might move towards war. So the backstory, the last month or so has been crazy over there. In February, a suicide bomber killed 40 Indian soldiers in Kashmir. India blamed Pakistan. Pakistan denied involvement. Violence escalated. Then an Indian fighter pilot was briefly held captive by Pakistani forces. And then this week, someone lobbed a grenade at a bus station in Kashmir. And on top of all that, there are these videos of Indian men beating Kashmiri street vendors that have been going viral as well. 
It's a lot. Uh, so I asked Basharat what it feels like to see his home right now in this light. It is, it is terrible. My parents live there and, you know. They're there now? Yeah. What do your parents tell you when you talk to them in the midst of this conflict? Oh, they're like, what are you publishing today? <laughs> <laughs> are they, do, they, do they express, you know, <laughs> do you talk to other folks from the region? And if so, what are they saying? Like, I guess what's yes, the mood course. in Kashmir? I mean, look, people are, people are petrified. People are yeah. scared. And just just hoping that there's some sanity and the leaders in India and Pakistan and in Kashmir have conversations and find a way to end this war. Nobody wants to see their children live in, grow up in fear and live with like an uncertain future. Is there something special about Kashmir that makes both India and Pakistan want to continue fighting for so long over it? I mean, one is that, you know, it just happens to be a case where there's an unresolved question. The second thing is that Kashmir does, it has a kind of a certain spell in the South Asian mindscape. Hmm. It is like, you know, it's 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 in a way what, you know, we all kind of read the stories of Americans being obsessed with Paris and all the American writers wanting yeah. to go to Paris. Yeah. For Indians and Pakistanis, Kashmir is that kind of a magical place. Really? Why? It's this, it's, it's this insanely beautiful place with high mountains and like fantastic, you know, maple trees and willow trees and saffron fields and, you know, a, a massive lake kind of in the middle of the main city. And it's a territory they desire. It's a real estate developer's dream. They just want to like, <laughs> this is a piece of land that has to be mine. Yeah. You know, there are disputes and conflicts all across the world. Some capture more of the world's attention than others. But a big question I have with this ongoing conflict in Kashmir between India and Pakistan is mm -hmm. why isn't the rest of the world super, super alarmed? Because both of these countries have nuclear power. <laughs> Are we all not worrying enough about the ultimate escalation of this thing? No, no. I mean, I think there is an element of worry. But the reason this particular conflict between India and Pakistan hasn't captured uh, great global attention is that uh, as as journalists, both you and me, working for American publications, we know is that unless you have a, a direct American involvement, American public especially is not really bothered. Mm. Like we, you hear so much more about Afghanistan. Of course, things are much worse there, but that's an American war. Huh. Do you? And I guess the next question would be like. Would America or the rest of the world paying more attention to this conflict or even being more involved in it, would that even help? <laughs> like, would it help? Would it hurt? Is this... It does help. I mean, I think there's... An, there's the, the, right now, we're in a moment where the kind of military escalation has been halted. They are coming back from the brink and America, France, UK were all involved. There was a lot of back-channel phone calls by by U.S. officials, by British officials, by French. So people are were involved in scaling this back. Uh, but it would help if they encourage both Indian and Pakistani governments to actually sit down and have a conversation and sort this out. What do you think the people of Kashmir want? There are some people who lean towards India, some who lean towards Pakistan, but the majority kind of lead, leans towards an independent Kashmir. Huh. I think people, a, a large number of people are just exhausted and tired of both. Do you see yourself ever going back there and living there? At some point, yeah. I would like to go home. You think you'd ever feel safe there? 
I always feel safe there. Huh. In spite of. Yeah. It's home. Okay. Hey, well, I thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story. Thank you. Stay safe out there. Thank you. Many thanks again to Basharat Peer. He's an opinion editor at The New York Times. I'm back with Laura Nelson of The L.A. Times and Audrey Cleo Yap, who covers sports and entertainment out here in Los Angeles. And this story is a reminder for me that even as American politics kind of captures everyone's attention over here all the time, there are still these really big stories happening all over the world that we should be paying more attention to. I think journalists have given a decent amount of play to it, but people aren't interested in reading it. People are so inwardly focused right now on what's happening in the White House and in Washington and all the circus of everything that's going on that there's not a lot of energy left over to care about things happening elsewhere. Which is not to say that's good, but that is very much how we seem to be functioning right now as a country. I wonder sometimes, though, when something like this happens, like a suicide bomber Mm -hmm. and that's the thing yeah. that makes it to the page, then yeah. it frames this entire conflict as... as One instance. Exactly. When it's been decades. When it's been literally <laughs> since partition. Oh, yeah, totally. So, yeah, yeah I, it, it's, it's been interesting, but I agree with Laura. A lot of times these conflicts don't make it past a simple scroll on your Twitter feed or on your mm-hmm. social media feed because it's like, oh, well, Trump tweeted, let's devote <laughs> yep. an hour and a half to that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, we'll play Audrey's favorite game. Who said that? You are already making, like, punch the air signs. Are you ready to win, Audrey? I'm going to jump and a rainbow's going to fly under my legs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It came out of the blue one night when she was sleeping, a searing pain that jumped from one part of Devin's body to another. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? This week on Invisibilia, the surprising story of how pain spread through a culture, our culture. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Laura Nelson. She covers transportation at the Los Angeles Times. Hardest job in the world or funnest job in the world? It can be both. (laughs) All right. And Audrey Cleo Yap, journalist covering entertainment and sports. Are you both ready for the big showdown? Laura's cracking her knuckles. (laughs) Audrey's taking a sip of what is that? Whiskey? Protein shake. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Time for my favorite game Who Said That? Who said that? Who said that? You both have played this game before. It's quite simple. I share a quote from the week. You both have to guess who said that, or at least get the story I'm referring to. The winner per usual, gets nothing but bragging rights. You ready? Oh, I've been ready. I've been. been A lot of mess talking in the studio this morning. I wasn't an athlete in high school, (laughs) so I feel like I've overcompensated a lot in my adult life. Like, I'm just, like, hyper-competitive sometimes. It's all good. Yeah. I like that It's healthy. It's healthy. It's totally healthy. I was a mediocre athlete and like to (laughs) slyly come from behind. Uh uh So I'm reserving all smack talk. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha. All right, first quote, and just get the story I'm talking about. Just get close. The first quote is, 
this phenomenon is not child abuse and is generally not meant to harm the child. It's the cheese, cheese thing. on the head. Oh, yeah. yeah. Both of you got it, but Audrey got it first. <laughs> um, so this is the internet craze sweeping the nation. It's called cheesing or the hashtag cheesed challenge. Tell folks what this is. People throw cheese on their baby. On slices the face. of cheese. Yeah. Why? People are throwing slices of like American cheese on their baby's face, videotaping the reaction, posting this to the internet. Some people shouldn't be parents. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm not a parent, but that seems fun to me. <laughs> <laughs> the kid's not going to remember. Oh, no. So this quote. No, they will because it's immortalized on the internet now. Yeah. That's, so, a, that's a fair point. Exactly. Yeah, very so, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> so this quote actually comes from Sandy Santana. She is the director of a group called Children's Rights. And she told NBC News, quote, but parents should first and foremost treat their children with care. Throwing cheese at helpless babies can, in some cases, shock them and lead to unnecessary discomfort. Is that really worth a few social media likes? Well, when you put it that way. (laughs) God. (laughs) Which I think is a fair way to put it. I will say the funniest part of the cheese challenge, besides the babies with the cheese, because that kind of gives me pause. But people have been trying the cheese challenge with dogs, throwing a slice of cheese at a dog's face. The dogs just eat it. (laughs) They've got quick reflexes. (laughs) I would welcome more of those videos. That I'm okay with. Yes. That I'm okay with. My dog consents. Exactly. (laughs) Next quote. Quote. Unfortunately, we have seen an uptick in non-constructive input, sometimes bordering on trolling, which we believe is a disservice to our general readership. It's about comments. Yeah. It's about, is it a mainstream Is this about the Marvel movie? It is. Ah! Your territory. No. <laughs> so this is all about Captain Marvel, the newest story. comic book movie that's coming out. Is it this week and is it already I out? I saw it last night. I saw it last night. Okay. Uh, basically, the movie review site Rotten Tomatoes said that after trolls went online to Rotten Tomatoes to try to tank the ratings for Captain Marvel. Uh, they're mad because this Marvel movie uh, is led by a woman. Hmm. Have y'all been following this? Yes, yeah. I have, and I'm ashamed that I didn't jump to that first. I blame it on on a late screening of Captain Marvel, which is I good? found very entertaining. Okay. Yes, but it is been it has been interesting reading some of the takes. Oh yeah, and it just makes me want more takes from women. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah completely agree. Um, <laughs> super interesting article in Bloomberg talking about um, the budget that studios now have to spend, like, to combat trolling really? for female-led movies. And Marvel, this is how I knew about this. Uh-huh. I didn't see the Rotten Tomatoes thing, but, like, the Marvel movie had a larger... Um, kind of PR trolling management budget than like any movie in history because wow. they knew that like the 4chan people were going to come, come for, for them. Wow. Um, it's really interesting comment on the state of yeah. um, women on International Women's Month, might I add. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the game is tied. Oh, man. I'm just, <laughs> I might crumb, I might choke. Final quote for all the marbles. Here it is. I believe the future of communication will increasingly shift to private encrypted services where Facebook, people can... Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Oh, my God. Congratulations, this Laura. This is the Thank first you. out of all my appearances. I know. I tip my hat. Your record is still a good. Worthy, a worthy champion. You still, you, still have a, you still have a better season record than the LA Lakers. Oh. Ooh. 
Oof. Sorry. Oof. Sorry. Well, when you put it that Sorry. way. <laughs> the bar is low. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Did you see that Snoop is selling his tickets? <laughs> oh, my God. You know he's it's like, bad when He's like, Snoop I'm done with selling. this team. <laughs> and he, he's selling his season tickets for $5. Wow. I should buy Snoop's tickets. Also, bad. LeBron, you were you had one job, LeBron. It, we digress. I digress. Anyway. I digress. This quote <laughs> comes from Mark Zuckerberg. This he is put, so ridiculous. So ridiculous. So he had a Facebook blog post this week announcing that Facebook is going to pivot to privacy. They're going to work on having new communications that are private and encrypted, which makes me say, what? This is a company. He's a little late. He's a little late. Also, the entire ethos of Facebook is built on anything but privacy. When I think Facebook, I think privacy champion. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you know the old saying in Silicon Valley, if the product is free, you are the product. You are the product. Yeah. And for Facebook... We have been the product for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how exactly will a shift toward privacy square with monetizing every click, every impulse, every like, every mm-hmm. secret desire that we have that we share on this platform? Oh, yeah. How do those two things mesh? Yeah, yeah. He is saying that he wants to integrate Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger so that folks can use those channels privately and unencrypted channels to talk to each other. Uh who is going to trust Facebook when they say now we do privacy? I mean, I, I, as always, I am willing to keep a corner of my mind open to this possibility. And if Facebook wants to seriously tackle encryption and safe ways for people to communicate around the world, excellent. Yeah. I hope they look inward first. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm barely on Facebook anymore because oh same. And it's I, too much. I, I mean, studies have shown now that that millennials are like fleeing Facebook and yeah. mass. Oh right? yeah. Like weirdly, that reckoning has not come to Instagram, which is the same company. The same company. And I and this story made me realize, and I guess recall that WhatsApp, which is a very private and encrypted platform, it's also owned by Facebook. Got to get on Signal. Signal is the future. (laughs) Signal is the future. Speaking of signals, you read all the right signals in this game, Laura. You won. How does it feel? It feels amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an undefeated. Yes. You said that, Jason. Speaking of things that feel amazing, it's time to end the show as we do every week. We ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Let's listen. Hi, Sam Sanders. This is Violet from Austin, Texas. I'm five. The best thing that happened to me this week is that I got a camera. It has a case, and it's blue. Um, that's the end, and um, I also really, really hope you have a good week this week. Good night. Hey, Sam. This is Angela calling from Chicago. The best part of my week was when I was on the red line heading to the airport, And I ran into my friend Casey, who I hadn't seen in three years. The best thing that happened to me this week is that my eight and a half month old son crawled for the first time this week. The best part of my week was my childhood best friend I've known since I was four years old coming to visit me to meet her honorary nephew who is 10 weeks old. The best things that happened to me this week were I turned 27, I moved to Dallas, my dad was in town, and the Jonas Brothers are back together. Hi, Sam. This is Lisa in Dayton, Ohio. And the best part of my week is that my daughter, who's now seven months sober, is coming home. Hi, Sam. This is Rich from Michigan. The best part of my week was meeting up with over 1,200 science teachers from across the state. We were there to share lesson plans and labs and all that kind of stuff. But really, we were just trying to figure out ways to get more kids involved in science and engineering. The energy was awesome, and we learned a lot. Hey Sam, this is Barbara in Maine. 
The best thing that happened this week, uh, probably even this year, is that after living for 21 years in the same house in Northern Ohio, my husband and I were able to successfully sell the house, pack up all of our belongings, and move to the coast of Maine. Um, it feels great to downsize. It feels great to be in Maine. Um, so please come and visit. We live here with mom and two parrots, three dogs, and five cockatiels. Have a great week. Thanks, Sam. Keep up the good work. I appreciate your show. Bye. I will visit. I like Maine. It's beautiful out there. It's so beautiful. I'll visit. It feels like a different country. Oh, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. I, I heard it's cold and... Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> all, those, all those birds, though. No, I, I, I'm fine with Sounds, birds. I love birds. I love birds. <laughs> Thanks to all the folks you heard there. Violet, Angela, Stacy, Deborah, Emily, Lisa, Rich, and Barbara. Violet, thank you especially. I don't know if I'd have the courage to call into a radio show at five years old, but I'm so glad that you did. Made my day. All right, we listen to all of these that come in. Thank you to everyone who shares these every week. You can send in your best thing of your week at any point throughout any week. Just email me a voice file to samsanders at npr.org. On that note, we're going to go out on a band that's been the best part of many parts of my life, Nickelback. What part specifically, Sam? Please name the part. I spent a lot of time in high school and college really liking Nickelback. I feel like your praise is escalating oh, it each is. time we it hear is, Nickelback. because I know it drives me like, crazy. I'm getting married to this song. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Congrats to Nickelback, because this week they were name-checked in the halls of Congress. Also, congrats to both of my guests for just being great guests. Audrey Cleo Yap, she covers sports and entertainment. And Laura Nelson covers transportation for the L.A. Times. Uh, what are y'all doing this weekend? I'm going to Costco. <laughs> and you? I'm repainting some lamps in my living room. Wow. <laughs> Such a I'm all about the DIY weekend. in 2019. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. The show was engineered today by Marcia Caldwell. Steve Nelson is our director of programming. Our editors are Jordana Hochman and Alex McCall. Our big boss is Anya Grundman, senior VP of programming at NPR. All right, listeners, till next time, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. She's so ready to take those headphones off. I know. Hold on. Somebody who makes me laugh